Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. Entire sermon 
uh, on this individual. I've heard a lot of comments about her. But when you look at her life, it is certainly filled with what I want to minister on, and her name is Bathsheba. And of course, you can't look at Bathsheba and what she did and what she went through in the experiences of her life without also looking at David. And I think that there are very powerful lessons here uh, that will help us all, because Bathsheba's life is, and her story is one of sin, tragedy, restoration, and eventual significance. So we're just going to read, I've got a lot of text here uh, that we could go to, but let's just start with the familiar in Second Samuel, and we're also going to read other verses that, uh, further down the road in her life that characterize this issue. How are you handling your Second Samuel 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him. And all Israel, they destroyed the people of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. David remained in Jerusalem. It happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. So David sent and inquired, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said to him, I am with child. Let's just bow our heads and pray, and kind of set the stage for everything that we're going to hear this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to hear your word ministered, Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, let our hearts be tender and receptive, and let us respond to this altar with brokenness and repentance. And we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk, first of all, about the anatomy of a crisis. The story of Bathsheba is very compelling. And this struck me uh, because although we know about the events that happened to and around Bathsheba, the Bible doesn't give her very much of a voice. She says a few things in the Bible, but it doesn't give her very much of a voice. We know that she lived a very significant life. Let's not forget that she is in the lineage of the Messiah that was to come. So let's talk about the main points that we want to uh, use this morning in this message. There are three significant events that we can characterize as crisis in her life. First of all, it's the text that we read. She is solicited by the king. She commits adultery with him. She becomes pregnant. She informs the king. Then her husband is killed in battle, which of course was a smokescreen for his murder at the hand of David. And then he marries David. Have you ever wondered what that must have been like for her? Guilt? Regret? Shame? These are catastrophic circumstances and events, and she is a real person with real emotions and real feelings. What must that have been like for her? And then, of course, 
she goes through the pregnancy. A little bit later on in 2 Samuel chapter 12, she goes through the pregnancy, and then the baby is died, baby dies, and she is struck with tragedy. We have David's response, but the Bible doesn't say anything about this woman who lost a child that was born alive, who was sick, and then died. I wonder the level of grief, and again, guilt. Did she blame herself? Is she angry at David? What was all this like for her? And then flash forward several years, she of course got pregnant again, uh, had Solomon. The Bible says that the Lord loved Solomon, and he was determined by God to be uh, the next king of Israel after David passed away. And of course, uh, uh, she got involved in assisting Solomon to get to the throne because his brother Adonijah had seized the throne and threatened the lives of Bathsheba and her son Solomon. So I want to talk here because there's some common denominators. There may be other factors. But there are some common denominators when it comes to your crisis and the one that you may be going through right now. Not all crisis is the same. It has different features and different facets and different causes. But there are some common denominators. Your crisis may involve one of these three three things that I'm going to discuss. It may involve two of them. It may involve all three of them. And it may need another sermon. This subject might, uh, because it, your crisis may not be any of these. But the likelihood is that it's somewhere in this message. First of all, crisis involves uh, sin. This is the ultimate direction that all sin will lead to. Now, in order for Satan to achieve his objective of throwing you into crisis as a result of your sin, powerful deception has to be at work where you become blinded to the consequences, deceived about your ability to manage your sin, control your sin, hide it, conceal it, and avoid the consequences and get away with it. We do not consider people that are in the throes of what David is going through in Bathsheba when they're trying to cover and mask over their sin and their immorality. They forget about the biblical imperative. Number 32 says, if you do not do so, take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. It doesn't say in all likelihood your sin will find you out, or if circumstances fall correctly, your sin will find you out. It says be sure. That means you better be convinced that your sin is going to find you out. That phrase, find you out, means it will make an appearance. It will be known. It will come to light. This is a biblical imperative. You cannot keep sin hidden forever. It is eventually going to come to the surface. And usually the way it works is the longer you conceal it, the worse the crisis and the fallout when it finally does become known. This is exactly what Jesus was addressing when he said in Matthew 7, familiar verse, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain descended, floods came, winds blew, beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, there's no problem when you're concealing sin as long as it doesn't rain. But rain is going to come in life. And winds are going to blow. And the foundation upon which you are building your life is eventually going to be exposed. This will eventually come. Outside forces will make their appearance if your repentance is not forthcoming and if it's not voluntary as a result of conviction. Oh my God, what am I doing? I need to repent and get right. If you don't do that, then God will loose and life will loose other forces that will do the exposure for you. And of course, that's an act of love on God's part so that He can deal with the issue of life. David and Bathsheba are able to hold it off for a while, even in the face of her pregnancy. But of course, God knows about this. They allowed sin to run its course as long as they did. And all that did was make matters worse eventually. The longer you delay repentance, the worse the crisis and the fallout. And that is the very nature of sin. It fractures and it dismantles the foundations that sustain life. It weakens them over time and it will eventually result in exposure over time and collapse. Crisis comes as a result of sin. Secondly, crisis involves tragedy. The baby dies. Then Nathan departed to his house. This is 2 Samuel 12, 15. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. This is that death of the child, the birth and then the death of the child, happened after David and Bathsheba have repented of their sin. This is after the visit of Nathan, the instrument that God used to bring David to repentance. So he repents, he gets his heart right with God, and then tragedy strikes on the heels of their repentance, and the fallout is beginning to be experienced. I'm going to get to in a moment what repentance does and what it doesn't do. But for now, the crisis that is brought on by tragedy is now what they have to face, and that is after repentance, after they've gotten their heart right, this tragedy strikes them. The crisis, and every pastor knows this, of course, the crisis that is brought on by tragedy is not always connected or caused by sin. How many know that the inexplicable can happen to good people in life? Things that we don't anticipate. Things that we would never have written into the script of our lives. David and Bathsheba have prayed. They've turned from their sin. David sees his servants whispering and talking. And therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. But we know there doesn't have to be sin involved. That tragedy can happen in life. I have a couple in Florida. Albert and Yoli uh, Martinez. They were celebrating uh, Albert's father's birthday. He flew from El Paso uh, to uh, Orlando. They drove an hour and a half up to Tampa, uh, Florida, to go out to eat and celebrate uh, the birthday. 
uh, Albert and Yoli are the couple that I have in uh, uh, Orlando. Uh, the mother and father are in my church, so they have flown over there, and then they have uh, uh, two children. They finished eating at the restaurant, uh, and about 11 o'clock at night, they're driving through uh, Tampa, uh, having a great time. They're in a celebratory mode. They're fellowshipping and talking uh, and rejoicing. Uh, they go through an intersection, uh, and coming crossways uh, was a pickup truck going 60 miles an hour. Uh, the guy was lit up on cocaine, had drugs in the vehicle, uh, cocaine and marijuana on the front seat of the car. He slams into the van, uh, and throws all three of the children out the back door, and their son, 14-year-old David, is killed instantly. One minute, everything's cool. Split second later, everything changes about life. No time to prepare, no time to pray, no time to repent, no time to get your heart right with God, no time to say, God, help us through it. Uh, they had to have been ready uh, at the moment. I can report to you uh, that, thank God, they were. All we can see now is Jesus Christ manifest in this circumstance uh, after that terrible accident. Crisis also involves the agenda of others, or can involve the agenda of others, other people by what they do, can throw you into a crisis. Fast forward a number of years from the pregnancy and all the circumstances that we read about here, the baby dying. Now Solomon is of age. David is passing away. Solomon, the son born to Bathsheba after the baby died, has already been determined by God to be the next king after David. But his brother Adonijah has another agenda and another idea. He seizes the throne, and then Nathan, who is loyal to Bathsheba and David and Solomon, Nathan the prophet gets wind of the plot, knows that the inevitable is going to happen. Solomon is going to have to be killed to remove the threat. And he goes to Bathsheba and says, Come, please let me now give you advice. This is 1 Kings 1.12. Let me now give you advice that you may save your own life. So he must have had wind that the likelihood is that both Solomon and Bathsheba are going to be killed. And he says that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So crisis can happen, and we are the victims of it. We haven't done wrong. We haven't sinned. This is not some unforeseen circumstances that has happened but it's the agenda of another person uh, or another individual by their selfishness uh, or their sin or their wrongdoing uh, can throw you into the crisis of a lifetime. We can be affected by others, and we are. Bathsheba, Solomon are thrown into a crisis. And the issue here is that they have to react to this. You can't do nothing. You can't sit around getting mad and angry, and God, why? You have to come up with a, a right-spirited response. And that's what I want to talk about secondly. I want to talk about how crisis affects us. Crisis has a voice. People talk when they're in crisis. People behave and act in certain ways when they are in crisis. And... The issue is how you deal with it, how you talk, how you behave. 
one way or another, it affects us. And what's been interesting to me as a pastor uh, is involving, uh, is observing uh, multiple people in my congregation uh, going through varying degrees of different sorts of crisis uh, and being able to observe how they're responding, uh, how it's affecting them, uh, what they're saying, uh, and how they are behaving. And of course, the obvious is right in front of us. Uh, how you handle crisis uh, is going to depend on the quality of your relationship with God. It will put that to the test because the strength, the fortitude, and the wisdom that you need is going to be found in your relationship with God. There's only so much I, as a pastor, can do to assist people in crisis beyond my ability to pray for them and perhaps give them some counsel and show them what the words may say about their particular circumstances. They better get on their knees and get a hold of God. You're the one going through it. I can't go through it for you. And again, Jesus said in that same text that I read earlier, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall. So crisis has come to this individual, and because their house has been built on a rock, and there were no storms, no wind was blowing, no rain was falling, but they had the foresight to construct their life on a solid rock, so that when crisis hit, they were left standing. In that case, of course, their stability is linked to obedience. Obedience translates into the spiritual fortitude that will facilitate necessary strength and wisdom that you are going to need for crisis. Someone asked me recently, Pastor, what will disobedience do to me? And I thought it a bit of an odd question. If you have the foresight to ask, uh, what will disobedience do? You must have some indication about what God wants you to do. Why don't you just do that and not worry about what disobedience will do? When you see crisis cause people to stagger, wobble, collapse, anger, bitterness, bad attitude, drop out of church, it's not the crisis. It's the foundation of that person's life. How does this play out? We can look at a couple of examples, and it gives us some insight before I talk about how not to handle a crisis. Consider King Saul. He gets the news that the Philistines have gathered, and they're going to mount an assault against Israel. He's fearful of the enemy. He doesn't have a relationship with God. He's long since backslidden by this time. He goes into a panic, goes to see a witch, has a seance with her. And then when the battle is engaged, he's certain of defeat and death and torment from the enemy, and so he commits suicide. Crisis strikes. And that's how he responded. You take someone else like John the Baptist. He has a crisis of faith when he's in prison. And he says to his disciples, go ask Jesus if he's the one or should we look for another? 
his crisis has disoriented him because uh, wasn't he the one who baptized Jesus, who heard the audible voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He heard all that. Saw all that. Validated who Jesus was. Uh, but now he's in a crisis of faith. Have you ever wondered about Jesus' response to, to hearing about John the Baptist? You would have thought that, that compassionate, loving Jesus would have gotten on the list and gone to visit him in prison to cuddle him and to encourage him. But he doesn't do that. He leaves John to himself to get a hold of God. And sometimes that's kind of how you feel. Why aren't others doing more for me? Well, we're doing all we can. You better get a hold of God. And John never got out of prison like Peter did. Well, that's not fair. Well, you take it up with God then. Peter was going to be executed the next day. Angel comes, gets him out. John the Baptist stays in prison until the day of his execution. But we have to assume that he did get a hold of God and he didn't need a visit from Jesus because Jesus had confidence in his relationship with God that that would see him through to the end. So let's talk about how not to handle your crisis. First of all, don't handle your crisis in isolation. In our text, David and Bathsheba, David primarily violates relationships, detaches from leadership and people and counsel. He has Uriah killed, uses Joab to bring that about. David has an agenda. He's now twisted by the sin and the crisis that it has brought to his life. And rather than repent, he seeks to cover up and he begins to use people to that end. And he cuts off those, namely Nathan, who might be a threat to his agenda. In crisis, you must have two things. You must have people and leadership in your life. You cannot allow your crisis to cause you to isolate yourself from people or to cause you to turn on people as David did. He's turning on good people, loyal people. It would have helped him. One of the primary mistakes that I've observed in this recent spat of crisis in my church, and I've observed this over the years, is people in crisis back away, circle the wagons, and isolate themselves from people in leadership. And it wasn't until David is reconnected with leadership that he gets his heart right. He doesn't do it by himself. Oh, I'm going to man, I'll, I'll be able to, I'm cool, I'm good, I'll be fine, but no, you won't be. He doesn't get his heart right with God until he's reconnected with leadership, and that is what initiates his repentance and gets him on the right track. In crisis, you must be transparent. And it's our own pride that undermines this. It drives me crazy when people, well, I don't want anybody to know what I'm going through. People are talking about me. One is coming to church, and when somebody looks her way, she's assuming they're thinking about the men. Listen, people have better things than to be thinking about you all the time. I know you're thinking about yourself 24-7, but not everybody is. And so sometimes people will not come to church so much. 
avoid having the greeter talk to the pastor. They don't want to have to face him and hear him say, how are you doing, sis, or how are you doing, my brother? People will know. No, this is People are meant to know. We are a family. We talk about each other. We yap about each other. We're in each other's business. Managing your crisis in isolation will never work. Your perspective, with all due respect, to as spiritual as you look to me this morning, in isolation, when you're in crisis in isolation, your perspective can't be trusted. You need clarity that others can bring. Listen, any one of us can get all jacked up in isolation. 1 Corinthians 12, there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. Why are they all suffering? Because we know you're different. And we're meant to know your business so that we can exercise with you and pray for you. Yeah, there are nutcases, gossips, busybodies around. You're going to have to learn to ignore those people. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. How do you restore if you don't know their business? Someone's isolated and detached, circled the wagon, dropped out of ministry, coming to church late and leaving early. The one can lift up the other because they know what's happening in your life. Ecclesiastes, of course, says two are better than one because they have a good reward. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. You have to be in the presence of others when you fall so they can help you. Don't isolate yourself in crisis. The second way not to handle crisis is to panic. Allow fallen nature, emotion to determine your course. This is a picture we have of David and Bathsheba. Being a reactionary on an emotional level to your crisis is a mistake. And if you start making your decisions based on the surface initial emotional upheaval, you are doomed. Look at all that David does. The plot to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, to cover the pregnancy, and then the plot that's carried out by Joab to murder Uriah. Joab knows what David is doing, carries it out, and then it's all concealed. Or at least the effort. But this is madness. This is insanity. Not to mention what he does to Bathsheba. He kills her husband. When she gets word that he died, she grieves her husband. And we have every indication that Uriah was a good, loyal man. He was with David before he was king. And then he married her. All of that action is based on a heart in panic when crisis hits. 
thirdly, don't try to maintain integrity when your heart's not right. You may be doing some things right. You may kind of hang in there a little bit. You're coming to church. Maybe you're maintaining your ministry, but you're all twisted inside. Because of a crisis that, as a result of your sin or tragedy or the agenda of others, you're not right internally, but you will pretend like you are. When Nathan went to the house of David, he's all jacked up. Look at what all that he's done. And then Nathan tells David this little story about the rich man stealing a poor man's lamb for his guest. And then David rises up and says, I want that man executed. He's pretending integrity when his heart's not right. He's trying to act like he's right. That's a huge mistake. And then, of course, in crisis, some people just get angry. We can only guess, really, how Bathsheba reacted to all the above. We have to guess because, for the most part, the Bible is silent. Was she privy to what David did to her husband? We know that her grandfather was privy to it. We know that his actions apparently became known to the enemies of Israel because the Bible says that Nathan told David that this has brought reproach upon Israel. We know that Joab knew there's a good likelihood that somewhere along the line, Bathsheba became aware of what David had done. She has a lot to be angry over. And so may you. How could this happen? How could they? Why? Some people react to crisis. The initial knee-jerk reaction is what ends up getting cemented in place, and that initial reaction is anger, either at people or circumstances, or you're blaming somebody. People even get mad at God. You'd be amazed at how many people are sitting out there right now. You're mad at God for what's come down on your life. And that's easy to do. Here's Albert and Yoli, this couple in my church. They're pioneering a work, and they are good people. Never caused me any trouble. Always been supportive. Every opportunity offered, yes, let's go for it. Served with me on staff for a number of years. Just a good, solid couple. A great family. Both kids on fire. Saved full of the Holy Ghost. What's amazed me really about them is how they've reacted. Albert and Yoli weren't injured in the accident, just minor aches and pains. All three of the kids in the back seat of the van got thrown out. David passed away, the 14-year-old. The two girls broken up. Pelvis is broken, and that's a very painful injury. They're still both in wheelchairs to this day. They're going to be getting out and start walking in the near future. So I got to the hospital the day after the accident. I got in the plane the next day, flew out there. And at this point, uh, Vero didn't know about her brother. When I got to the hospital 24 hours after the accident, she was in traction. 
in bed. Her face was covered in scabs. They, they flew across the pavement like a rag doll. They're all cut, all bruised. She's awake. She's in a neck brace in a lot of pain. And she's asking over and over, and they wanted to wait until I got there before they told her about her brother. We told her about her brother. Her first comment. Now, she's wept and cried and, and grieved and not saying that hasn't happened. But her first comment was heaven. Change everything happened. The next day, the grandfather came to her bedside to see her for the first time. He had been with his wife in another hospital. And he came to her bedside and he's weeping and saying, I'm so sorry. All this happened because we came out here. If we weren't here, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, that was the worst birthday, the worst day of my life. It happened on his birthday. And Jeddah, this was two days after the accident. Now looked at him and said, oh no, this was the best day. David and You can choose to get mad at God or you can choose not to. You can choose to deal with what's happened with the right heart, and maybe capturing the right heart is not the easiest thing, and sometimes it's not when you get hit like that. But listen, the right heart can be maintained even in the midst of that level of crisis. And there's people sitting here this morning, you're mad at God over what's happened. So let's talk about that as I close this morning. How are you handling the crisis? Of course, the first order of business to repent, if repentance is in order, and get a hold of God. I had one woman in my office a couple of months ago in the face of major crisis in her marriage and with one of her uh, children. She said, Pastor, this crisis has made me get a hold of God like never before. This woman's been in my church since the 80s. Long-term member. Her and her husband have served in various ministries and leadership and such things. She said, Pastor, I realized I needed more of God in my life. I had to get a hold of God. That's the first order of business. Let me mention, though, here what repentance does and doesn't do. Crisis will always tell you something about yourself, what spiritual shape you're in. It will reveal the attitudes of the hearts that are there. Jesus on the cross, it was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what was in his heart. Not mad at God, not distressed primarily, but he's thinking about others and thinking about people because that, what, that is what was in his heart. What spiritual shape are you in in the midst of crisis? At the very least, as I said, crisis can put you on your knees. Remember Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20? He gets wind that three armies from the beyond the sea are coming at him. They're not ready. They're not prepared. And there's something like a day's journey away. That's very little time in those days to get ready for a major assault. And the Bible says that Jehoshaphat feared, which in that case is a good thing, and set himself to seek the Lord. That should be your first reaction in the face of Christ. This is a good man, Jehoshaphat has a spiritual dimension to his life. But he realizes that in crisis, I've got to get on my knees before I react in fear or respond or get mad at God. Before any of that, I've got to get a hold of God in my life. And if you'll do that first, chances are you're going to handle it right. What repentance does is put you on a right footing with God. So David said to Nathan, 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned 
against the Lord. So, with this one visit, David, you're the man. A massive, major recalibration of David's life happens from hiding his sin, concealing his sin, being backslidden and not being right with God, to repenting and saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that, from one moment to the next, you can be right with God. Repentance puts you on a right footing with God. And you must have that in crisis. What repentance may not do is remove all the consequences. Even if you're a victim like Albert and Yoli were, they're still having to go through all this and adjust to the loss of their son and they're continuing to pastor. That's what they want to do for now. You have to work through the aftermath. Repentance did not prevent the death of the child. They had to deal with it. Bathsheba had to deal with it even though they repented. This recalibration of their hearts has transpired. But the baby still died. And this is one of life's greatest challenges sometimes, dealing with consequence after repentance. So what can we say about Bathsheba? She survived. That's what we can say. And that is more than I can say for others in Christ who go through sometimes less. Bathsheba has her opportunity. Mad at God, mad at David, blaming others. I was minding my own business in a good marriage. But she does survive this. She gets through it. Good comes. I know you don't want to hear this. Good comes out of crisis always. Do you think that the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 8.28 when he was in a five-star hotel without a problem in the world? He wrote that as a revelation of being in so much crisis in his life. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You learn so much in crisis God does so much in us when we keep our hearts right in crisis. God does so much and we change as people when we push back at anger and we forgive and we let go of getting mad at God and we simply strive to keep our hearts right and, and, and maintain our connection with leadership and people. First Peter says, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened. But rejoice that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceedingly joy. One day, the only thing you're going to feel toward crisis is gladness. You, this is temporary. Fears are short-term, time-sensitive. They have a season, a beginning, and an end. They're all stored up in heaven. But remember, in heaven, the Bible says, no more tears, no more pain. You're going to be glad for what the crisis produced in you because it contributed to you ending up in heaven. So what is Bathsheba's legacy? It's almost too much, really, to get your head wrapped around successfully. She survived her sin. 
She survived tragedy. She survived what David had done to her and her husband. She survived all that without losing her mind. Then, years down the road, she makes a contribution to the will of God in her son's life. Adonijah seizes the throne. He has a loyal band of co-conspirators. The city and the population seems to be accepting of what he's doing. At that time, the odds are against. It looks very bad. But Bathsheba is in place. Listen to me very carefully. You must get through your crisis because there are people down the road that you need to assist those people in finding the will of God for their lives. Mom and Dad, you've got to quit feeling sorry for yourself and get through this. Your children need you down the road. Don't let crisis take you out. Solomon needed Bathsheba. He couldn't advocate for himself. It's a very hostile environment. Adonijah would have killed him and probably had already planned to have him killed or executed. And Bathsheba's life is at risk. And so very bravely and very confidently, she marches in to the presence of the king and begins to advocate for the will of God in her son's life because he can't advocate it for himself. Solomon needed her, and God needed her at that time. She found stability in life. She discovered a way to make it through. She found a way to process, to live with David, to love David, despite everything that had happened. And so must you learn to live with what has happened and maintain a right heart down the road people are going to need. Amen. That's all I have. Let's welcome Pastor Cox as he comes.